Hello, and welcome to Pod Academy. This podcast is part of our coverage of the Rupture Crisis Transformation Conference Series. In Georgiana Benita's own words, this talk is a fun piece in some ways, and a tragic piece in others. It ties into her broader project, charting the literary history of America's romance with petroleum. Before we get stuck into this, here's the speaker to introduce herself in her own words. Uh, my name is Georgiana Banita. I work at the University of Bamberg in Germany. I've been there for uh, four, five years. And previously I studied in um, uh, the US at Yale University and I worked as a postdoc at the University of Sydney in Australia. My talk was derived from a project that's uh, been on my mind for several years now the cultural context of energy, especially petroleum, so the oil industry, the cultural history of the oil industry, and the literary history as well. In the talk, I focused on um, television series, which is entirely different on the one hand, but also similar in narrative construction in the representation of certain landscapes that are associated with the petroeconomy, refineries, oil refineries, as they are specific to Louisiana and to Southern United States in general. It is all about how other people perceive America because that in turn impacts how America perceives itself. And the impetus of my talk was exactly the feeling uh, generated by this perception. The United States are no longer a leading power, certainly not in economic terms, certainly not in energetic terms, and this has triggered a moral crisis within the nation. And the petroleum industry is a great catalyst for that, and the feeling that I focused on in my talk was the embarrassment, the humiliation, the debasement that attached to this moment of crisis and rupture, you know, to latch on to some of the um, terms in the title of the of the conference. Now, if you're not familiar with the TV series True Detective, or even if you are, now would be a good time to refresh your memory by watching the opening credits online, because Georgiana will refer frequently to the imagery used here. I'm going to discuss some of the individual images in this opening sequence in some detail, but before I do that, I would like to begin with Adam and Eve, as it were, um, with a brief section about the importance of energy and petroleum in particular for the discipline of American studies. In 1923, after dropping out of the University of Chicago, intellectual historian and American studies founder Perry Miller shipped out as a seaman on an oil tanker headed for the Belgian Congo. As Miller would recall in his preface to Aaron into the Wilderness, it was on the shore of the Congo River amid oil drums that he, I quote, conceived his life's mission, nothing less than to expound his America to the 20th century, to discover the innermost propulsion of the United States, unquote. Much has been made of this anecdote by scholars of transnational American studies, beginning with Amy Kaplan, yet the centrality of the oil cargo to Miller's vision has passed entirely unnoticed, even though in the 1920s, oil would have been prominent in the minds of Americans, not only as a source of a massive bonanza in Western and Southern states, but also as a vehicle of US hegemony in international affairs, both political and economic. 
I begin with Miller's almost subconscious detection of the United States fossil fuel propulsion at the dawn of the American century because it encapsulates oil's overlooked errand into the wilderness. America is nature's nation, a ubiquitous fact in early 19th century American literature that imbues the young country with a fledgling sense of identity. So what happens when the energetic requirements of civilization and human progress wreak havoc on, the, on this profoundly American environment? Allow me here also a biographical parenthesis. As a Romanian-born Americanist living in Germany and having studied and worked at U.S. and Australian institutions, Yale and Sydney, I am invested in and convinced of a transnational American studies project. My entire research agenda is organized around how, from an energetic viewpoint, the contours of American literature can only be transnational due to the cross-border slipperiness and fugacity of the material that has fueled the American century for as long as it has. What doesn't fully convince me is the injunction to eschew illusory internationalism by stepping out of the familiar American mythologies into which cultural and social foreignness is, um, are usually absorbed and controlled. But aren't these American mythologies themselves illusory and foreign to some extent? Simply positing them as familiar does not um, divest them of their cruelties and contradictions. The kind of American studies I would like to plead for prescribes dwelling in, tasting the toxicity of these failures, stressing the importance of globalism to the new American studies. John Carlos Roa argues that the discipline should begin to reconstitute its field of study, especially as the United States, this is a long quote from Roa, especially as the United States, along with other wor um, first world la nations, claims an ever greater responsibility for global economics, politics, language, and identity, unquote. True Detective reflects this American responsibility to maintain law and order, a duty shared by two homicide investigators, one of whom is just a regular guy, as he describes himself, Marty Hart, but with a big-ass dick, the typical embodiment of unscrupulous vanity, the local ugly American, and the other, a raw-boned Texan, Rust Cole, with a gift for puncturing his partners and everyone's illusions and taking detailed notes in a taxman-like ledger of just how awful everything is and how infinite human capacity for self-delusion. Their jurisdiction comprises murky marshlands of American filth, spread over several timelines and in general defiance of space and time, both of which Rust disregards as subjective and therefore meaningless human perception. What holds this half-submerged island of pestilence together is a frayed seam of refinery towers along the Louisiana horizon, which I will call petrodome throughout, and which emit the kind of imperceptible fumes that kill slowly and surreptitiously. I use the term petrodome um, with some anxiety in reference to Katrina, of course, to suggest exodus and entrapment. Also as an analogy to oil containers, which also um, feature pre uh, prominently on the show. And as an apt analogy for the countless musings in the series about vicious circularity, repetition, and the bubbles of illusion that fuel power. And that have made, and have made it possible for everyone to subscribe to and live out the American dream of energy stability and of the resourcefulness and resilience of nature. Um, 
And as a footnote to the footnote, in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010, it was also a containment dome that was used to stem the leak threatening the United States coast. Going back to the petrodome along the horizon, True Detectives America is fenced in by the barbed wire of its own power. The only valve of escape is underground. This resonates with the kind of historical American studies that Professor Dimmock has argued for, one that goes quite literally under the jurisdiction of the nation and mobilizes democratic forms that are multicentrally energized." Unquote. The nation retreats here to a gothic interior in which national, foreign, hybrid, and simply unnameable ghosts are lurking. Energy occupies this core, not as a hidden force, but more like an alien chestburster. It preys on the insides of mines and landscapes, only to emerge even hungrier, an army of churning metal and billowing smoke. And why, why exactly is this critique of the petrodome important? Because it defies a correlation between natural world and human subjectivity. The petrodome constitutes the umbilical cord between earth and human economy. The series' oblique yet unmistakable condemnation of the petrodome chimes with its resistance against the Kantian insistence that the world cannot be imagined outside the human mind. Fuel embodies the mutual constitution of natural and human environments. So what the series attempts to do, especially through the voice of its edgier detective Rust Cole, is to, to articulate a position that diffracts these two worlds, that laments the Anthropocene as a blunder, a misstep, a miscarriage of natural order and justice. True Detective is uh, obviously a very polarizing series. Critics criticize for its exploitation of female sexuality, hence my first slide, and for succumbing to the dark romantic fetishization of the female corpse, it also stimulates erudite viewers capable of recognizing sources as varied as Nietzsche, Lovecraft, Emile Choran, and Ligotti. It is often described as the perfect pastime for the morbid, pretentious, or pretentiously morbid. At the risk of being dismissed as belonging to this latter category, I want to bring the series engagement with degradation to the focus of my attention today. Almost as a new installment of the kind of disaster tourism that the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina unleashed on New Orleans, viewers are invited here to vicariously survey sites of environmental and human petrocriminality. Wetlands eroded by oil company dredging, poisoned waterways, the open air entrapment of oppressive marches, drowned in the stench of deadly petrochemical fumes. The two detectives drive by gazing at destitute women and children, the men presumably toiling away in the distant refineries. Women and children often framed as if inside a prison cell, as if tethered to their derelict homes or suffocating under the low-hanging crowns of trees. When asked to talk, they hold back. But the series insistently trains its gaze on the horizon of towers and contained lined and container-like um, and container-like spikes of a fence, sharp and looming like an army closing in. Rust and Marty's police vehicle always seems on the run from it. 
never coming nearer or bringing up oil explicitly in their meandering verbal clashes and taunts. And yet a background awareness of Louisiana's petrochemical industry is one of the, mo of the series' most memorable and persistent traits, as the opening sequence already, already shows. This awareness is fueled by imagery, dialogue, and a range of ramifications attaching to the material shapes and symbolic tropings of petroleum. Taken together, this kaleidoscope of clues testifies to the anxieties attendant upon the death throes of American hegemony and to the centrality of petro-fantasies to its constitution and resilience. The series does not merely proclaim or prognosticate the perishability or even the loss of these fantasies. It dwells perversely at the site of this loss and probes the mechanism by which both petrofueled fantasies and their dispersal make sense, how they proliferate consciously or under the radar of rational or articulated thought. The dynamic force of the series revolves, as I want to argue, around precisely the site of disenchantment, this humiliation, the dissonance between the artifice of coherence and the blankness of distress, a humility which, once passed with the subtle political centrifuge of the series, comes to encompass a statement on the humiliation of a post-hegemonic America and prescribes a practice for a post-humiliation American studies. What sometimes gets lost in talking about sets and subsets inclusion of counter-narratives or queering American studies across all kinds of tangential roots is precisely this sense of loss, loss of past greatness, depleting energy, the anguish of decay. This is the wound that narratives like True Detective don't attempt to occlude or somehow convert into triumphalist humility, which is a completely different version of humiliation a smug kind of magnanimous, charitable condescendence. Loving oil to the extent, I quote, loving oil to the extent that we have done in the 20th century, sets up the conditions of grief as conventional oil resources dwindle, Stéphanie Le Ménager writes in her recent book, Living Oil, and names the feeling of losing cheap energy, I quote, petromelancholia. I would like to go a little step further, beyond grief to the more viscerally self-diminishing affect of humiliation. More than energy is lost through humiliation than energy itself. The integrity of illusions, of cracked self-fashioning of, of self dishevels, of cracked self-fashioning disheveled desires and, urgely, and urges brutally curbed. And now I'm going to turn to the opening sequence that we have um, that we have just just watched. Throughout the series, the Petrodome begins as a geographical topos, indexing resource colonization and despoilment of the Louisiana landscape. Then evolves into a shaming panopticon for the story's grim view of human frailty and national geopolitical demotion and finally becomes a powerful anagram to the series shift from a gothically inflected anti-humanism to a post-human counter-anthropocenic prognostication of a world outside human consciousness. Far from being an unchanging artifact of a permanent energy unconscious, the Petrodome serves to denaturalize 
The unconsciousization of energy and its mystification, even as it remains riven by the contradictions of, a, of an embedded self-occluding impulse, it's trying to stay at the surface and be submerged at the same time. Images of the petrodome and iterations that invoke it must therefore be read through a dual hermeneutic which recognizes its simultaneously obscured and divulging functions. If they could be compared to an organ, these refineries would have to be the fascia, the connective tissue enveloping and binding together muscles and organs in the human body. In other words, the vulnerable inner lining, the expulsed interior of psychosocial life. In its monumental scale, the petrodome is also ambiguously alluring. And the contextualizing capacities of the serial mode, because this is, after all, not a film, but a television series. These um, contextualizing capacities of the serial mode, its narrative retardation, the repetitions, the nexus of various visual associations, allows the comparatively few images of Petra infrastructure to accumulate into a loudly significant continuum. Their lure is threefold, that they are simply there before us, without explanation or reference in the digesis of the story. One, two, that they convey a subtle analogy between the energetic relation in which humanity exploits and defiles the earth, on the one hand, and the violence of the murders and crime sites, on the other. Crime sites which similarly embed the human within a natural setting, suggesting a vile, reprehensible symbiosis. To give some examples of these crime sites and victims, one of the bodies, one of the corpses is wearing antlers, another is eaten alive by flies. The killer's den um, is found eventually in a, veg in, in a vegetal den surrounded by secluded woods. And finally, they interpolate us. They ask us to, to attach meaning to their spectral texture. They generate connections between events and with the world outside the series. They extend the humiliation within the narrative to a larger narrative of humiliation to which the background, the petrol landscapes, Louisiana, the American South, the United States, finally the world, are equally subjugated. Fundamentally, then, True Detective belongs to what Mackenzie work recently called Cinema of the Anthropocene, which consists of, I quote, narratives about a civilization confronting limits of its own making. But it doesn't belong to the two categories in which, according to work, this genre's samples usually fall, conspicuous energy expenditure on the one hand and apocalypse on the other. The twist of True Detective rests in the morbid pleasures and derives from an aesthetic and philosophical erasure of the Anthropocene, of human subjectivity, of the human right to claim nomenclatural and constitutive power, literally, over the world. The corporeal juxtapositions of the opening sequence in particular expose the Anthropocene as a moment of fraughtness, disruption, uncertainty, and exhaustion. So the images which you saw give an early inkling of the series um, anti-anthropocentric magnitude. I uh, included some of them again so we can look at them more closely. Human faces loom over the over refineries. The image, many of these images resemble photographs by Mitch Epstein and Edward Bertinsky. 
um, whose material is sublime aesthetic, um, I'm sure some of us are familiar with and I have analyzed elsewhere. In panning shots, we glide over these landscapes, looking down um, on towers that appear only as holes from this perpendicular perspective. But the key juxtaposition aligns human faces with blurry refinery landscapes, as in this image. Towers, um, freight trains, oil freight trains, and other grid-like structures. The general impression is monstrous, uncanny, biomechanical, a creature of human and chemical parts, an uncanny hybrid, a body without organs, but filled to the brim with energy, a petro-android. Interestingly, in all of these images, the shots of the refineries are not static. We are looking at them as we move past, which bestows a dynamism on the entire opening sequence because it's not photographic, it's not still-like, not a snapshot. Both the bodies and these landscapes trapped inside them are alive. What this entire sequence is doing, then, is focused on human bodies and trying to penetrate them, uncover the energies that keep them together, in this case, energies take a material, petrochemical form. We're looking at the victim of the first case, the first murder case. A woman found dead, kneeling with her feet and sp spiky stiletto supporting her bottom. Overlaid on the image of her lower back is another petrochemical landscape, wide-scale with several refinery um, Structures around her cockchix area, the, the, the excremental implication of oil is, is obvious. Um, it has often been referred to as the devil's excrement and appears in this guise in various representations of the petrochemical industry. Later, in the course of this opening sequence, the oil landscapes begin to burn their way into skulls. And another hydrocarbon landscape, but not refineries per se, is a network of highways superimposed on the picture of Woody Harrelson, who plays Marty Hart, um, the other protagonist of the show. The impression is of sinews and muscles, as if the face had been ripped off to reveal this interior structure presented as a network of crisscrossing highways. The corrosive effect is becoming so intense then in one image, we see the face of Matthew McConaughey being engulfed by the flames pouring out of a refinery tower. And finally, the dynamic of the final shot, with the protagonist next to their vehicle, both familiar with their surroundings and disengaged, as refineries come more and more clearly into view towards the end of the sequence. So what I want to do with this show essentially, is to prove that its core tenor, its core tonality is not humility, but humiliation, not fault, but sin, triggered by an underlining and always implicit slipping down of the U.S. down the ranks of the world order in ways that dark romantic and gothic moods aptly convey through the ways in which they draw on the subprime position of humankind in the pecking order of the universe. The series catalogs a number of humiliations, some physical and directly plot-related, others pointing to a broader national and environmental humbling, and thirdly, an existential debasement encompassing the human race. All three overlap and fold into each other. The first victim, found in the sugarcane fields outside Erath in January 1995, is kneeling under a tree, her wrists tied as if in prayer. 
that is one example of physical, concrete humiliation. Above the detective plot hovers a sense of natural and political disaster. Timelines are organized around hurricanes, floods, and storms. And in Woody Harrelson's performance, we recognize a bold and boldly humiliated frontiersman, smug in his self-fashioned social role and even smugger in his transgressions against it. For him and for the nation he indirectly substitutes, the key question is, in his own words, how you manage authority. There can be a burden in authority, he claims, in vigilance, in American authority, in American vigilance. Rust, on the other hand, constantly butts heads with and embarrasses his partner. In fact, they both throw each other's inflated sense of, them, of themselves into high relief. The natural humiliation around them amounts to a gradual erasure of the surrounding landscape, a sense that something corrosive has eaten away at the scenery. This place is like somebody's memory of the town and the memory's fading, Rust observes. And then he continues. This pipeline's carved out this coast like a jigsaw. The place is going to be underwater in 30 years, unquote. Fading, submerged memories are significant clues to the broader kind of humiliation the series projects and for which only complete amnesia and unconsciousness can serve as a cure. Indeed, many characters on the show have short memories, refuse or fail to remember, and build their lives on the shallow graves of past they choose not to acknowledge or discuss. It is especially through the medium of religion and contempt of revival ministry that Rust voices contempt for the mythology and entrenched rituals of the American dream. I quote, I think of the hubris it must take to yank a soul out of non-existence into this meat and to force a life into this thresher, unquote, a thresher that never ceases to instill anxieties and torment. This is where religion and other systems of structuring knowledge interpose themselves as carriers of relief and redemption. I'm citing Rust again. Transference of fear and self-loathing to an authoritarian vessel. It's catharsis. The priest absorbs people's dread with his narrative. Because of this, he's effective in proportion to the amount of certainty he can project. Unquote. The ultimate certainty Rust rebels against is that of happiness, not even as a realizable dream, but a persisting delusion, all the more irresistible for its capaciousness. I quote, see, we all got what I call a life trap, a gene-deep certainty that things will be different, that you'll move to another city and meet the people that'll be the friends for the rest of your life, that you'll fall in love and be fulfilled, fucking fulfillment. Unquote. When, we, when he talks about the ontological fallacy of expecting a light at the end of the tunnel, an actual light, fuel, energy, endless resourcefulness is implied. What energy does in its ability to enhance human potential and proportion is reinforce an exceptionally sense of humanity as blessed with privilege, and, an, and of America especially as entitled to the, historial, to the historical genealogy, economic advantage, and geopolitical leverage of energetic supremacy. Everyone will admit, however, that this is one of the slowest paced TV shows around and not exactly brimming with energy. 
Indeed, Rust's demeanor and his theories are entropic in essence. He's not, by his own admission, a nihilist, but a pessimist. So he believes in collapse, disappointment, humiliation. Consciousness, he argues, is an evolutionary misstep. We are trapped in history only because we are aware of it. So Cole instead preaches unconsciousness. If inattention is a sin, rather than infidelity to his wife, according to Marty, his partner, is Rust then arguing for even more inattention? Is he advocating for human catalepsy, stupor, and generally more quaaludes, something that he, by the way, does purchase illegally in the course of the series to deal with his chronic insomnia? Throughout, the signals sent by the Petrodome are micro-pitches to faint for conscious recognition. Only one reference to their ubiquity is literal and logical rather than merely figurative. The aluminum and ash that Rust can taste driving around the scene of the first murder and as he and his partner Marty are closing down on the killer's den. As the victims were first drugged before being killed, we can infer that some form of intoxication was part of their passing. The Yellow King, a constant reference on the show, is of course a literary reference, but also a drug experience, a petroleum-related drug experience. And it is in fact no wonder that the series has such an oracular overtone, because the visions inspired by the Oracle of Delphi and others were in fact, as scientists have recently discovered, caused by petrochemical fumes seeping out of the ground where plates, uh, where, where tectonic plates met and rubbed against each other. Rust Cole might be an occasional drug addict and was in fact working narcotics before joining homicide, but that CV does not solve the riddle. He rhapsodizes about the demise of individuals as if they were unchained, freed of selves and allowed to collapse into nothingness. I quote, I've seen the finale of thousands of lives, young, old, each one so sure of their realness, that their sensory experience constituted a unique individual with purpose, meaning, so certain that they were more than a biological puppet. Well, the truth wills out, and everybody sees, once the strings are cut, all fall down. Perhaps by obsessing about humiliation, Rust seeks to anticipate and diffuse this fall or he might envy it. In eternity, he says, where there is no time, nothing can grow, nothing can become, nothing changes. So death created time to grow the things that it would kill. Unquote. Perhaps what we can vaguely infer from this ranting is the infinite peace of mind that follows humiliation. The refusal to grow would therefore eliminate death, but of course the price to pay is that of not growing. How do we talk about a human and natural ethos that does not subscribe to the principle of self-perpetuation? What is the opposite of growth? Certainly not death, because it's growth that makes death, death possible in the first place, and exhaustion and depletion and melancholia and so on. In seeing life as a circle of violence and degradation, Rust envisions the opposite of growth as an endless bleeding of strength and resources, a purgatory of humiliation without mercy and without end. 
In his striking and original cultural critique of humiliation, poet and critic Wayne Kirstenbaum invites us to imagine a society in which humiliation is essential, as a rite of passage, as a passport to decency and civilization, as a necessary shedding of hubris, unquote. In all of these ways, humiliation is a salutary heuristic for the practice of American studies, as the past triumphs of the nation that generated the field rise up to humiliate the present self. This is by no means a radical discovery or indecent proposal on my part. In its calls for a post-hegemonic American studies, the field has evidently been enjoying what Kassenbach calls the sparks, the heat, the paradoxical illumination of more or less openly avowed mortification. But the refineries in this show force us to think of syringes, otherwise also features in a drug context, skeletons, gravestones, tumors, a festering growth that everybody is too embarrassed to look at, let alone discuss. They're constantly there, never explicitly discussed, but always in pretty much the same shape and alignment. Sometimes in interesting juxtapositions with um, nature and um, religious symbolism, or this is a, like a sort of um, derelict church that we can see here in a nice trinity of symbolism. Mm -hmm. um, and these are some other examples, just so you get an idea of exactly to what extent, to what extent they are present and the indirectness of the interaction between the protagonist and and the refineries in the sequence for example they are they are you know stopping to um urinate in that general direction um <laughs> or in this image one of the most one of the most uh, iconic i think because it recalls so much of the of the petro photography that is um that is um um, that has already entered entered the imagination of American studies by now, and some of the other, you know, just to give some more concrete examples of when they appear and to what extent. Kostenbaum writes, humiliation involves physical process, fluids, solids, organs, cavities, orifices, outpourings, spillages, it demands a soiling. Even if the ordeal is merely mental, the body gets dragged into the mess. And everyone in the series is indeed besmirched one way or another, and the landscape around them in equal measure. So my final question is, is there any reward to be found in this sordid focus on debasement and humiliation, on their dialectical prism and prison? The dividend, I believe, lies in the apprehension that despite its depletions and dissolutions, even humiliation is a frame for making sense of reality. The experience humiliation contains the promise that one will emerge on the other side, with a renewed sense of equanimity, a rediscovery of language, and internal sovereignty. New energies can be pump pumped out of humiliation's excrementally fertilized soil a new chorus of inner fantasies and memories that builds the illusory sense of ego. But the series does not advocate that, nor does my notion of a post-humiliation American studies. Illusions are inevitable. They are part of what Rust um, in the series calls human programming, the instinct to survive and thrive. They will form even in the most recalcitrant mind. 
A post-hegemonic American studies isn't much different from Rust's vision, who doesn't believe in hegemonic illusion but tolerates and occasionally derides the hegemonic pretenses of those around him. What should assail us ultimately is the need to taste what he calls the psychosphere, the, illum the aluminum and ash emanating from the refineries. To squat at the crime scene, somewhere between the skyline of petropower and the edge of the marshes sinking into the sea. Indeed, as I also um, more or less felt obliged to do at oil conferences all over the world, from Alberta to Houston, fly over the tar sands, sail around Houston Harbor, breathe in the air. Like a true detective, the true Americanist does not redress a humiliation, but envies it. She's the, she, she does not seek to guard against illusion and cruel optimisms, but to find a language to speak in the aftermath of humiliation. A language for the formal feeling, as Dickinson would put it, that comes after great pain. This podcast is part of our Rapture Crisis Transformation series, offering new perspectives on American studies. The rest of which can be accessed on the Pod Academy website. Before she left, we asked Georgiana to reflect on the event as a whole. This might give you some more inspiration for the next things to listen to. I was surprised, pleasantly surprised, by the fact that Professor Dimmock in her keynote also stressed narratives of humiliation and defeat as something that can unite communities in the United States with communities elsewhere that are being they are being suppressed or otherwise otherwise affected by industrial industrial complexes and secondly that in relation to my project in particular talking about oil talking about energy is a form of knowledge with specific sources and forms of application and discursive narratives. Just the way we talk about oil has a lot to do with our ability to process information on this particular topic. So it was even the even the talk itself was instructive for me in trying to transmit the information to the audience, see what the audience can do with that information, and maybe in, in this concerted effort that we can that we can try to achieve the emotion that I was that I was aiming for. That that sense of crisis and the sense of embarrassment about it and maybe what would happen after, how we come out of this moment and in what spirit. This podcast was produced by me, Joe Barrett, with Lucy Bradley.